everyone loves to get a great deal on something and negotiate. Really, we're negotiating how much we're willing to sacrifice for something. And we see that again in Scripture. As we come before God, we think, how much are we willing to sacrifice for this relationship? And instead of focusing on what we're willing to give up, we should focus on what God has given up to make this relationship right. We are his non-negotiable. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, February 26, 2012. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we start a brand new sermon series today. I'm pretty excited about that. This is based uh, primarily on the readings that are scheduled for the Sundays in Lent, or Lent 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And we titled it, Why Bother with God? There's a couple options with that. One was, Why God? Because you'll read these readings, and as a Christian, or even as a non-Christian, you look at it and you say, like, why? Like, why, why does God function this way? And we ask a number of questions. So today's question we're going to be asking is, why um, does this mean now I have to sacrifice? So the question was not, why should I worship God? But even more direct, why should I even bother with God? And it, we're going to look at how God works and what God has done for us to see if that makes some sense. The, um, there's a number of mountains. I'm excited about the series. There's a number of mountains in Scripture, and we just heard about one in the reading. And you might be familiar. If you read Scripture, you're going to run across mountains. So last week we looked at the Transfiguration, which happened on, does anyone know the name of that mountain? Mount Tabor is that one. It's kind of not that famous. It's kind of obscure. Uh, but then the closer you get to Mount Sinai, you know what happens on Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments. People are looking down. Uh-oh, so I shouldn't have hit the, shouldn't have hit the command. I hit it here. Mount Sinai, we're going to be talking about the giving of the Ten Commandments. So that's down in the Sinai Peninsula that he gives these to Moses. He goes down Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Carmel, this is where Elijah and the prophets of Baal have like a run-in right here. It's pretty cool. Now, a number of mountains that you're probably most familiar with all kind of center around Jerusalem. And if you go to cities, has anyone been to Rome? Rome is built on hills. They'll say like the Capitoline Hill and things like that. Has anyone been to Seattle? It's the same thing. They'll say this is Queen Anne Hill and this is Capitol Hill. And they're all based on these hills. Jerusalem is really built the same way. There's a primary hill. They call it a mountain, but it's like 2,400 square, uh, 2,400 feet up. And we're like, it's nothing. But it, it's built on, most of the city is built on this, but there's also uh, mountains or hills that are around. And some of those you're really familiar with. So one came up in the reading, remember, Jesus and his disciples are inside of Jerusalem. They leave the city, so they head to the east, and they go up Mount, does anyone know the Mount of Olives? So that's about 1,000 feet higher, which can explain a couple things. That's a, it's quite a bit higher than uh, the mountains of Jerusalem. So there's Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and most people say, well, that's it. Well, there's actually Mount Moriah, so we're going to talk about that too. So there's two mountains in, that make up Jerusalem, main ones, and then Mount, the Mount of Olives, which has a garden which is really more like a uh, like a park, and some of the olive trees, they say, some of the olive trees, if you go there today, are from the time of Christ, which is pretty cool. You can see 2,000-year-old olive trees, and when you think of the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, I thought of it as like a place like this big. We're really talking about um, all the trees that shoot up all the way. So this is the Mount of Olives. It's also where Jesus ascended to heaven, if you didn't know that, is on the Mount of Olives. At least I'm pretty sure about that. I should have quadruple-checked it. I can just always change it on the tape, and you'll be like, it'll just be like, and then Jesus also was on that mountain. It'll just have a totally different place, like when you watch bad doublers or something like that. Um, so these various mountains, and some of them are pretty famous, and when I think about the, the area of Jerusalem, in my brain, at least as I grew up, I always thought, well, this is always the Jewish. Didn't you always think Jerusalem was owned and run by the Jewish people? 
That's kind of what I always thought. That's not the case. So when we're talking about um, ancient, ancient, like Job or um, obviously Adam and Eve and things like that, it wasn't theirs until about 1,000 years before Jesus. And this is kind of how it goes down. The, the Lord, uh, the king at the time was David, and he saw and he wanted Jerusalem because it's really a great spot. There's water that gets into the city. It's an upper spot, which makes it really difficult to try and get to it. So he wanted Jerusalem, and the Jebusites who ran it, and it was still called Jerusalem or Salem at the time, the Jebusites are looking at David and his little piddly army, and they're like, <laughs> and this is the exact quote, like, our old and our infirm could defend the city against you guys. And they could because it's walled, it's way up in the air. If you look on a picture how much effort it would be to go up the city, it's a lot of work. However, the most famous, it's like the Trojan horse kind of, they, someone, one of his men find a shaft which was used, so it goes down the city and it goes all the way down to the lower part and they found the secret entrance into the shaft. So the men sneak through the shaft, it's now known as Warren Shaft because he's the one who found it. And you can still go on it if you get an appointment. Apparently, I think my parents even got to walk it, but you can still go there, and so they enter the city, as you can imagine, it's all walled, and everyone's hanging out, laughing at them, but then the whole army sneaks through the shaft, and gets into the, and they take Jerusalem, which is pretty awesome. So, uh, David's in his heyday at this point, doing really well, and uh, a little bit before this, he's doing really well, and uh, he's got a massive army, and so he gets this idea, I'm going to count my army. And the story, as you're going to hear, ends in a plague. So you're like, well, is counting bad? Is counting usually bad? You know, like buddy system, when you go swimming, is counting bad? No, this makes sense. I'm swimming, you're there, you're alive, good. We can keep swimming. Yeah, because we only do the doggy paddle when we swim. That's how we do it. And, or like if you go to the grocery store with your kids, you come with two kids, you should leave with two kids. This is not the Don't worry about God sending a plague on you. If you leave the grocery store, you're like, I, I want to count the kids. I'm just afraid the Lord will. Don't worry about that. That is good counting. The count of counting that David was doing is, remember trick-or-treating as a kid? And there would be no lies in the world if there was no golf, fishing, or trick-or-treating. Because you'd go to school the next day and you had to tell how much candy you had just pulled home in your uh, pillowcase. And now, like when I tell my kids, it's like, it was like this much. Which isn't true, because now people give like big candy bars. Back then, they gave you like those peanut butter kisses. And they give you like a small Mr. Good bar. And you're like, no, it's a real good bar. I was thankful for my candy. But we would count it and put it in the sack and we'd actually weigh it. Which is, there's no good reason to weigh your candy other than utter sinful pride. And we'd just lay around it like a dragon, like on the gold, you know. And we just, I had four siblings, so we'd try and make trades and things like that. That's the kind of counting we're talking about. So David sends out the head of his army, Joab, and he says, go count my army. It takes him nine months. So he goes around and finds out which guys can fight for him and things like that. 1.3 million men. That's pretty significant. David's feeling pretty good. Um, we would hope our army today has an idea how many people are um, outside of the world and how many people are in the army. David wanted to know. So he counts all his fighting men. He's feeling really good. And then the prophet comes to him and says, like, how dare you? Because why is it that this tiny little nation of Israel won any battles at all? Is it because their army was so sweet? Now, just read the story of the Old Testament. Like, they go against the Philistines who have iron, and these guys have, like, pitchforks. It's like, oh, come on, are you serious? There's no chance whatsoever for the Jewish people unless the Lord fights for them. And that's what God was so upset about. He's like, listen, the only reason you win is because I am with you, and I serve and I work with you. 
So David feels terrible about it. The plague comes. 70,000 people die. And David is distraught. He realizes what he did was sinful, and he was doing it in sinful pride. And he says, what can I do? And God says, go to uh, Mount Moriah and buy the threshing floor owned by Ona and sacrifice an oxen to me. So he goes there, he pays the money, he sacrifices this oxen, and the plague stops. A thousand years before that is really one of the first times that, as, when we look at believers in the Bible, that there's a sacrifice made on this mountain. The question we had today was, um, does this mean I have to sacrifice? And I could have gone at all kinds of things. Do you think an oxen was a big deal to a guy who had 1.3 fighting men? 1.3 million fighting men. This is not a big price, is it? That's, like, not a big deal. So you could push and say, God does ask things of us, but it's not that much. Because pretty much to do anything, don't you have to sacrifice on some level? What did you have to sacrifice to wake up? Sleep, right? And you have to sacrifice um, hanging out with your family if you go to work. You have to sacrifice pleasure and general enjoyment if you go to the craft store, right? I mean, these are all things you have to give up. Maybe you love the craft store. That's fine. I just won't go there with you. So you have to give up just about anything to do anything. So the question is, are we going to convince you that, you know what, what God asks is really not that much? I thought we could go there, but why not just hit the story that hits it? Which is in uh, Genesis chapter 22, uh, the story of Abraham. This is on this mountain that we talked about in Jerusalem, and it's in the very spot, if you ever look at um, two seconds of history, if you ever look at a, like a Google Earth thing of Jerusalem, we could have done that, but I was afraid it wouldn't work. So you could do it. You'd zoom all the way in, and what's the most distinct feature in Jerusalem today even? There's a golden dome, which is a, um, an Islamic mosque. That is built right on the site where um, King Solomon built his temple, where King Herod built the ultimate temple, where Ezra and his crew built the temple, and where the first temple was built, which is on the threshing floor that David bought to sacrifice that first oxen. So just think about, just for a second, how many sacrifices happen on that very spot. They'd do two a day for sure. The weekends, they would do seven sacrifices, plus all of your offerings, if you brought lambs and things like that for special sin or guilt offerings. Came. So we're talking about thousand upon thousand upon thousand of animals that died in that spot, which is the beginning of this idea of a substitutionary death. One of the first ones that we have recorded happening in that spot was a thousand years before David, 4,500 years from today, and it starts like this. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. We could have talked about how God doesn't ask that much of us, but I figured, why not go to the story? And, and of all the stories in Scripture, isn't this one of the most disturbing? Because doesn't, doesn't, isn't there logical conclusions that happen? Okay, Abraham loves the Lord. Okay, that's good. You love the Lord. I love the Lord. God asked Abraham to kill his son. God could ask me or you, dot, dot. I think this is utterly terrifying. It, it, it creeps me out to read it. And when you read it in Scripture, you, oh, and of all the stories in the Bible, this is one of the most 
uh, read stories from a narrative perspective. It's this beautiful story of, um, and the emotion that's involved for this early in history and things like that, people think it's fascinating. Um, and this God asking this man to do something that seems impossible. But just as a Christian, I look at it and it, I, I'm just amazed. So Abraham, Abraham's asked to kill his only son. And this next verse is the most amazing part. Verse 3. Early the next morning. Now, I've got a reimbursement report I'm supposed to do. And I'm actually a month behind. I was out of town, so I didn't do it last month. So now I'm stretching my reimbursement report out. And I hate doing my reimbursement report. This is to do a reimbursement report. And I've kind of delayed it. I'm, my office is really clean. You know how that works. You know, if you, unless you have important things to do, the unimportant things don't happen. You're doing all these other things, and it, the same thing happens to your house. Suddenly, my garage looks dirty when you got to do your taxes and stuff like that, right? So you're doing all these things. That's to do a reimbursement report. He's asked to kill his son, which I don't think he's looking forward to. And what happens? Early the next day. The next day, early. And I don't know if that was because he didn't want Sarah to know about it because he's afraid like she'd wake up and she'd be like Where, what are you doing oh nothing just headed to mariah with the servants and the boy i mean I, I i think more of it is it was god's command and he said i'm going to do it so he gets up early the next morning he saddles his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set about for the place that god had told him about On the third day, so now we're riding along, and he's going along, and um, before we get to this section, many people do ask, like, what is involved if you become a Christian? They'll say to me, and this is regular, um, in a Bible basics class or something like that, the question almost inevitably comes up, well, does that mean now, if I become a member of the church, does that mean I have to go to church like every week? They're really asking what? How much do I have to sacrifice? They're saying, well, if I go to church, um, does that mean I have to stop doing this on the weekend or hanging out with, do I have to get all new friends? People have asked me that. I'm like, well, it kind of depends on your friends. No, I don't say that. I, okay, I do say that. You know, it kind of depends on the activities, your friends and things like that. What about my behavior? What about my movies? They're really asking me, how much do I, how much do I have to give up? Let me just, let's just lay it out before I become and follow this. And I wish it was just new Christians that asked that question what are they really doing is they're trying to negotiate with God through me. So it's a really strange conversation. They're saying, will God still be happy enough if I still do this? So they're here, I'm here, and I'm like, you should just talk to God about this stuff. But they try and go through me. Do Christians do the same thing? Do you find yourself trying to negotiate with God? And what I mean by that is say, okay, God, I'm all in as long as this isn't involved. And I would call those non-negotiables. Uh, this happens regularly. I'll run into a young, nice young lady. This has happened again and again. And I'll talk to them about God's word and what God has to say about their situation. They say, I love my boyfriend, um, but we need to save money on rent or something like that. So we're going to live together. And I said, well, God actually um, says that that's not right in his eyes. Well, I think God would understand is kind of their saying. What are they trying to do? They're saying, okay, God, I'm in. I'm all in as long as you don't affect this part of my life. Then we're cool. Sometimes it happens, people say, um, all right, I'm in, and God, I love you and I worship you, but I don't really want to give up my money. Um, you can see that happening in the Old, uh, New Testament with Jesus, right? He goes to see this rich young ruler. The guy has a lot of money. He says, give up 
um, follow me, do these commands. He's like, you got it. I love commands. I love commands. He's like, I'm all in. And then he says, sell everything you have. And he goes, oh. Oh, so you want to actually hit my non-negotiable areas. Then this isn't that cool. How many? I don't know what your non-negotiable area is. Is it your kids? Uh, for some people, it's their health. As soon as they get sick, they're like, why would God ever do this to me? Uh, what has God done to me? Sometimes it's their kids. They've suffered a loss or their parents, and they love that everything's great. I love God as everything is smooth. And then suddenly something I really like is gone, and now it's God's fault. What they're really trying to do, and what we sometimes do, is try and negotiate with God. God, I'm all in, as long as you don't. You know what? Could you say a working definition of what our God is in our life is what is non-negotiable? Think about all the things in your life. What is the one thing you would never want to give up? Could you say that's a working definition of what your God is? Abraham had a choice here, and it, now I'm speculating here, but do you wonder for a man who had no children and longed to have children? Isn't that the strangest thing? People who have no business having kids from a human perspective have kids all day. And the people that just long to have a family and they're, they're secure and they want to raise that child in the Lord can't do it. That's Abraham and Sarah. They don't have any kids. They're, she's 90 and he's 100 before they finally have children. So he would have been on the Smuckers video with Willard Scott. I mean, the, the point that he gives children. So he has this child and he's only got one. And the child's old now. He's got to live and, and go through the fun ages. You know, when they're babies, dad's just kind of holding, like, great, okay, you can hold the baby. But then the kids start to do stuff, you know, and he's tossing his son in the air, and it's totally fun. He's old enough to carry wood later on, so this guy's a little bit older. So he's got this son. Do you wonder if that started to slide, that relationship with father and son started to slide to an area of non-negotiable? Where he started to say, like, okay, God, I, I love you, but really, I really love my son. And so God says, in your life, the only non-negotiable starts with a capital G, me. So go prove it. So God comes to him, which is the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine, and says, that thing that is maybe, and it's speculation, maybe slide into non-negotiable, he says, go kill your son. So he gets up early, he travels. And just imagine that, traveling for three days, thinking about this. I mean, it's like a band-aid. It'd be like taking a band-aid off for three days. You're like, ah. I mean, just meant he's thinking about this and thinking about it, and he gets all the way to the foot of the mountain. And the question is, how does he take a step up that mountain? People look at God a number of ways. When, when new Christians come to me, they really want to look at um, Christianity as a religion. And what I mean by that is they want to make sure it's got regimented rules so that they know they can succeed. Everyone wants rules in a game, right? And if religion's like a game, I want to know the rules so that I can succeed and be good at it. And that's what people are trying to figure out. So that perspective is really, I'm going to use some big terms. Let me hit them up here. If you're not familiar with these terms, this will get a little heady for a second, um, but we'll come back down for a second. Um, the moralist says, I want to know the rules. And my relationship with God is based on morals, which says, I get a certain benefit from my relationship with God, and if I follow the rules, it's worthwhile. The modernist is actually what we run into more and more today, and sometimes there's a mixture, but a modernist is someone who says, my relationship with God is like a spiritual thing. 
and I th I'm running to more and more modernness in that sense. The, the theology isn't a big deal. The commands aren't such a big deal. It's just my relationship with God, and I feel good like when I go skiing or I go in the mountains or I go fishing or I'm, I, I'm at peace with God. And I say, well, do you have a relationship with God? And they say, I pray every day. And, and what they mean is I have this conversation with God uh, every day, which is good, except who's doing the talking? That's only one way, by the way, if you pray. So this is the two options. If you're a moralist and you only see this relationship as commands, which would be like your employer, there's certain commands that are going on here. I follow the rules, there's certain benefits that come to me. What happens if your employer asks you to do more than you're willing to do? More than the benefit is worth? Are you going to do it? No way. Why, why do it? And if Abraham was strictly, if this was strictly about his obedience, he doesn't take a step up that mountain if it's just about following God's commands. Because you know what, God, it's not worth it at this point. If he's a modernist that just says, um, God, we have this great relationship and everything's good, if God actually asks him to take his son's life, that doesn't sound like a real good friend, does it? He doesn't take a step up that mountain. So what is it that draws him up that mountain? Verse 5, I think, is the key. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham saw this as devotion to God. Verse 5, we will worship, and then listen to what it says. What, what's interesting about the end of that sentence? Two things are, are colliding with colossal force. God said he's going to bless the whole world through Abraham, and particularly his one son, Isaac. And God just commanded him to kill that son. What two things? God's promise, which said he's going to bless him, and God's command are just smashing together. You've got to make a choice. You either say, okay, I'm going to follow the command and ignore the promise, or I'm going to just listen to the promise and ignore the command, you know, because I'm not going to do this because it, the promise isn't going to happen, or you just say, what does Abraham say? We will come back. In fact, if you read in Hebrews, Abraham was so positive that even if he took Isaac's life, Hebrews 10, I think it is, or Hebrews 11, the heroes of faith. In Hebrews 11, he said, uh, he understood that if he took Isaac's life, that God would raise him from the dead again. Isn't that awesome? But let me ask you this. How many of you witnessed someone come back from the dead? That was his logical conclusion which doesn't make sense. God says, all right, go kill your son, and he knows there's a promise connected to that son. He goes, well, God will raise him from the dead. He says, my logical conclusion is God is going to do something I've never seen in my whole life. Isn't that crazy? That this, he's not like, well, God will work it out. He says God is going to raise this guy from the dead. So his obedience is not what drives him up that mountain. His devotion to God's promise leads to submission. So now the narrative slows down completely. Three days, we're like, boom, a couple verses. And now it slows down. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, so he's old enough to carry the wood. And, himself, uh, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. And he knows what's question's coming. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
I just imagine a pause because tears are rolling down Abraham's face. And he says, essentially he says, I don't know. You know, he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they keep going. When they reached the place where God had told them about, remember on top of Mount Moriah where the temple ended up, Abraham built an altar, like piece by piece. He arranges the wood on it. He bounds his son Isaac, who is saying, all right, I trust, look at that. Abraham trusts God, and how much trust does his son have in his dad? Imagine trying to tie up a four-year-old, much less some kid who's strong enough to carry wood, and knowing like you're going on the altar where people die. Isaac goes along with this, trusts his father, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood, and he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. And you know how this ends. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. <laughs> you can imagine, he's like, just making sure I go in the right spot. He's, he's holding it, holding it, and then it, I just imagine there's no pause right there. He's, he called out from heaven, Abraham, and they probably didn't get through the second Abraham. He's like, here I am, yeah, yeah, what do you need? Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know you could say your non-negotiable is me because you have not withheld your, from me your son, your only son. Abraham looks up and he sees the ram. 2,000 years after this, on a mountain not too far away, another son is put on wood. And what's fascinating about that story is that as the nails went down the drive, did anyone say stop? They went all the way through. Again and again and again. And when God looked at your sin, when he looked at you, he says, I'm willing to give up anything. If you sat at the base of that mountain, couldn't you just say that? If you sat at the base of the mountain, we want to yell, God, don't lay a hand. Peter said that. Peter, you're not going to die, Jesus. I don't want you to. He says, do not do anything to him. That's what we want to yell. But when we see what God does to his son for our sins, again, as a substitute, who should have suffered for David's rebellion? David, but who pays the price? An ox. Who should have paid for the sins of the people of Israel again and again and again? The people, but who pays the price? A lamb. Who should pay for our sins? Us but who prays the price? We watch figuratively on the bottom of this mountain and watch God drive nails through his sons and we can say, God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld from me, from you, your son, your only son. Three days later, he rises. And what do we discover in this story? The story of salvation. Who is God's non-negotiable? Think of all the garbage you have that you'd say, I don't really want to give up. I don't want to give up this particular sin. I don't want to give up um, drinking on the weekends to drunkenness. I don't want to give up um, some immoral activity. I don't want to give up fornication. I don't want to give up um, my car. I don't want to give up my job. I don't want to give up my money. I don't want to give up my kids. And God says, listen, listen, listen. Your non-negotiables are just things and people. He said, my non-negotiable is not my son. My non-negotiable is you. And so he drives the nail all the way through to do whatever possible so that you can be with him. Just take a short inventory of your life. I'm not asking you to write things down. Just try and think in your head what, what things are creeping up 
that say, God, I want to be fully devoted to you, but these other things are there that are keeping me from that. What things, if God said to you, I want you to give that up, would you just cringe at? List those things out and put it in perspective that you've got a God who says, you are my non-negotiable, and not only out of honor to him, say, God, you are our non-negotiable.